Yeah, what up? This is Dart Adams. Uh, this is the second episode of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, the first episode was basically me getting a whole bunch of shit out the way because it was going to be a podcast where it's transitioning from what it was and now this is what the podcast is. So without any further fucking ado, let's just get down to what we about to do today. Um, I'm going to run down a couple of things as far as the difference between the industry then versus now, whereas I'm not going to lie, I just don't fucking understand the industry. It's an animal that I'm not familiar with. I'm not really a fan of. Um, earlier, there was a discussion that happened with uh, DJ Booth, and they were discussing impact. And when they were talking about the impact of the new J. Cole album, they talked about uh, streams, Spotify, uh, Apple Music. And a whole bunch of other things of that nature. How it was number one here and it was streamed by this many million people. And my response to that was, is this how we gauge impact nowadays? And the answer is yes. That's how impact is gauged now. Well, when I think about impact, I tend to look at what was happening either in front of me, on the streets, or on the radio, how music sounded how people dressed going forward. To me, that was how I gauged impact. And I guess you could still do that today. But again, I'm, I have a different perspective because I'm not as clued in to that. A uh, perfect example is when you look at how the Minneapolis sound affected black music or pop music in general, starting in like 83, 84. You start listening to how music sounded, how the production changed, how the aesthetics change, how people dress differently. Songs like Oh Sheila by Ready for the World could hit number one because people, a lot of people mistook Ready for the World for Prince. You know, they thought Oh Sheila was about Sheila E. You listen to songs on black radio charts from like 83, like Lilo Thomas, Who Do You Think You Are, which sounded like a Morris Day solo single. And that was part of the reason why I was so popular on black radio at the time. Uh, and like when I look to gauge impact or the changing landscape of the music industry, uh, one of the things I, do, I did was, um, well, I related to, I was making a book. I was writing a book and I was going to tell this tale of um, R&B, the transition of R&B into the new Jack Swing era. And I was going to tell the story in 50 albums between the space of 1984 to 1988. In order to do that, first thing I did was I did research. And one of the things I researched first was I started with the black music charts. Why did I start with the black music charts? Because, well, between that span, black music especially was super competitive. Actually, no, it was hyper competitive. But I also know that that's the time that the era transitioned. Everything transitioned. So I was going to see the change, whether it be in the charts or in the nature of the charts, how they changed between that five-year, uh, six-year span. Uh, actually, the five-year span would be 1984, 1985, 1986, 
Thriller came out, what, November 30th, 1982? So 1983 was going to be dominated by Michael Jackson, and 1984 was going to be the after effect. He was still going to be there because back then, an album cycle for a popular album was probably anywhere between, what, 18 to 24 months, depending on who you are longer. That's not the case anymore, really. Um, So I start with 1983, and I thought to myself, I was like, if I want to understand the difference between 83 and 88, and the transition and how the landscape of the music industry changed going from being one person dominating it or several people dominating it to it being wide open due to the change in sound and sonics with the new Jack Swing era. That means that a lot of older artists are going to be aged out or got knocked out the box and a lot of new younger artists are going to be the ones coming in for whatever reason. And if you're going to figure out why, you have to go to each era, you have to go to each year, you have to look at those songs, you have to look at who to produce them, you have to look at the artist, you have to hear the music, and you have to do the work. You have to get your fingers dirty. And when I was researching for this book or whatever, I, don't, I didn't really write it, write it. Maybe I might write it in the future, who knows, somebody pay me. Um, that's what I did. So, I started with 1983. And the first thing I noticed in 1983 was that there were only 15 number one singles on the R&B charts for 40, for 52 weeks of the year. So, of course, that means that we start with Marvin Gaye's Sexual Healing, Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, The Girl Is Mine, Gap Band Outstanding for one week, but then Michael Jackson's Billie Jean just dominates. Then George Clinton's Atomic Dog dominates. New Edition is able to, you know, knock both George Clinton and Michael Jackson's Billy Jean off the top of the charts with Candy Girl. But it lasts one week because Michael Jackson comes back with Beat It. Then you got Gladys Knight and the Pips and Tume's Juicy Fruit. You got Donna Summer, Rick James, Rufus and Shaka Khan, Lionel Richie and DeBarge. And that accounts for the 15 number one hits for 1983. But then I jump ahead to 1984 and I see, okay, in 1984, there were 19 number one hits. But that's better. But who are these artists? Again, we start with The Barge. We got Cool in the Gang, Patti LaBelle, Cheryl Lynn, Rockwell with Somebody's Watching Me, Cameo with She's Strange. You got Lionel Richie, Yarborough and Peoples, Denise Williams, O'Brien's Love Light, which a lot of y'all I don't think really know. Prince's When Doves Cry dominates for a while. Ray Parker Jr. knocks him off of Ghostbusters, but then Billy Ocean's Caribbean Queen comes back. Stevie Wonder, I Just Called to Say I Love You, knocks Prince's Let's Go Crazy off the number one spot. And then Chaka Khan's I Feel For You, followed by New Edition's Cool It Now. But then Ashford and Simpson's Solid. And then Midnight Star's Operator closes out the year. So 1984 and 19. We go to 1985, we have 21. We have 21 number one hits. And it's nuts because you're like, okay, you start to realize that we're getting more hits, but we're seeing some of the same names on the charts, but some of the names are disappearing. And then we're seeing new ones emerge. For instance, we know Midnight Stars Operator starts off the year. Eugene Wilde's Gotta Get You Home Tonight, replaced by New Edition's Mr. Telephone Man. Diana Ross is Missing You, her song for um, Marvin Gaye. Which is followed by the Commodore's Night Shift, another song dedicated to Marvin Gaye, who just passed away uh, not too long ago. 
Uh, Maze featuring Frankie Beverly back in stride. I think people, all, for some odd reason, they just think that they only made um, Before I Let Go. But then we have The Barge's Rhythm of the Night, which was a song that was introduced by um, The Last Dragon. It was the video within The Last Dragon. Um, then we got USA for Africa's We All the World. But it gets knocked off by Whitney Houston's You Give Good Love. We got Freddie Jackson, Rock Me Tonight. Lucens Hanging on a String. Renee and Angela. Aretha Franklin. Whitney Houston, Cool in the Gang. Ready for the World's Old Sheila, which I just talked about. Freddie Jackson, Come Back with You All My Lady. Stevie Wonder's Part-Time Lover. Has the charts for a while. And then Isler Jas- Isley, Jasper Isley's Caravan of Love. And it's closed out with Eugene Wilde's Don't Say No Tonight. Now, 1986 is when things really start changing. It's uh, the year Janet Jackson asserted herself with control. You have Jam and Lewis who really just like, who are making hits all throughout the previous years on the black music charts, especially in maybe some pop hits. You know, um, working with Sherelle, uh, SOS band, Climax. So they were doing their job changing the aesthetic of the music. Of course, you have um, Larry Blackman who was working with Cameo who was actually doing things. In 86, he really, like, started to assert himself. Um, He was doing work with, what, Cashbox and all these other things. So we look at 86. 86, we start off with Eugene Wilde. He's falling off. Lionel Richie, Say You, Say Me. Dionne Warwick and Friends, that's what Friends are for. But then we get Melissa Morgan's remake of a a, a Prince classic, Do Me Baby. Well, it turned to a classic. Um... Renee and Angela are back. Janet Jackson's What Have You Done For Me Lately. First hits March 22nd. It's up there for two weeks. Princess comes back with Kiss. Stephanie Mills. Patti LaBelle Michael McDonald's On My Own. Janet Jackson comes back for two more weeks with Nasty. Billy Ocean has a hit. Elder Barge hits with Who's Johnny. Timex Social Club's Rumors hits, which is big because their producers... Uh, guys who would later come back with um Tony Tone Tone in um, 1987 and that would be really crucial as far as the New Jack Swing era and you know these guys would also later on produce for um in vogue in 1988 crucial guys in the New Jack Swing era the production team um but we go down Billy Ocean, Timex Social Club, Gene Carn, whose name is the only time we're going to see it, Shirley Jones, Gwen Guthrie, ain't nothing going on but Durant, uh, famously uh, talked about in uh, Raw by Eddie Murphy, Levert's Pop 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 Goes My Mind, that's what, Orange Juice Jones, The Rain is number one for two weeks, Cameo's Word Up, Larry Blackman production, Gregory Abbott's um, Shake You Down, Melba Moore and, and Freddie Jackson. Freddie Jackson follows that up with Tasty Love. Then Ready for the World's Love You Down. And it ends with Bobby Brown's Girlfriend. That's 1986. So you look at 1986. And there's 26 number one hits. All right, That means that the average number one hit is lasting two weeks. As opposed to before. Where a song was lasting between three to four weeks. And that's just a change from 1983 to 1986. Now we jump ahead to 1987. And 1987 is really interesting because this is the beginnings of, like, the first hold of the New Jack Swing era. You know, Teddy Riley really starting to get his hooks in people. So Bobby Brown's girlfriend, again, Janet Jackson's control. And I really think that this whole, um, this particular timeline was really kicked off by Janet Jackson's control because it changed everything. It made everybody look inward Everybody realized this is what we have to be on from now on. 
it's kind of Andre Simone um, kicking off things in 1987 with um, with Homegirl from um, Jody Watley, who who is in um, freaking the name of the group. But anyways, Jody Watley, she like really comes out the box after Janet Jackson. Luther Vandross has stopped the love. You have Cameo, Melba Moore, Freddie Jackson again, Prince. The System, Luther Vandross with Gregory Hines, Atlantic Star, Lisa Lisa and Colt Jam, The Whispers with Rocksteady, Herb Albert with Diamonds with Janet Jackson, who isn't listed here, I don't know why, um, Stephanie Mills, they were on A&M, Stephanie Mills, Alexander O'Neill's Fake, which is a Jam and Lewis production, Present Principles, a Jam and Lewis production, Freddie Jackson's Jam Tonight, Lavert Casanova, which is another New Jack's Swing production, Love is a House by Forsome D's, a popular song, um, Michael Jackson with Cedar Garrett, Just Can't Stop Loving You, which is knocked off by LL Cool J's I Need Love, which is mind-blowing. LL Cool J knocked Michael Jackson off the charts. And this is four years after New Edition knocked him off the number one charts. And, of course, we're talking about the black music charts, not the pop music charts. You got Stephanie Mills, Michael Jackson again with Bad, the OJs, Angela Winbush, Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind & Fire, Roger, and then Michael Jackson closes out the year. That's 1987. So there's... 33 number one hits in 1987. 33. Now we jump to 1988, which is when everything goes wild. 1988 is when all hell breaks loose. As far as the New Jack Swing era that summer. So, of course, Michael Jackson kicks off everything. You have Gladys Knight and the Pips, Keith Sweat, I Want Her, which actually came out earlier in 1987 but it took forever to climb the charts but once it did it takes a top spot for three weeks you have pebbles girlfriend which is a la and babyface production keith sweat's production is um of course um keith sweat's production is of course um teddy riley then we have stevie wonder morris day's fishnet which is of course produced by jamin lewis michael jackson's man in the mirror terrace trent darby wishing well we got tina marie's ooh la 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 he used the butt. I'll be sure it's night and day produced by his, him and his cousin Kyle West. Pebbles, Mercedes Boy, another L.A. and Babyface production. Johnny Kemp's Just Got Paid, which is interesting because Johnny Kemp's Just Got Paid is, is of course, you know, a, a Teddy Riley production. Then we have Tony Tony Tone's Little Walter. And um, it's interesting when you look at Tony Tony Tone and um, Little Walter, and especially that first album, Who? Because a lot of people, when they look at the history of that album, look at the history of this group, they don't really investigate that album. But it was recorded by the, the duo that I was telling you about, um, Foster and McElroy. Foster and McElroy do not get anywhere near enough credit for their production and how they changed everything going into like 88 in the New Jack Swing era. George Michael, Teddy Pendergrass, Sade, the Mac Band, Bobby Brown, Don't Be Cruel, who of course his album was... Uh, uh, he had production from L.A. and Babyface and Teddy Riley, Freddie Jackson, Jeffrey Osborne, Lavert, Bobby Brown's My Prerogative, Karen White, Luther Vandross, Anita Baker, giving you the best that I got, Cheryl Pepsi Riley, Freddie Jackson again, The Boys Down My Heart, Sherelle, Everything I Miss at Home, and then the year ends out with Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers tumbling down. So when we look at 1988, 35 number ones. We go from 1983, where there were only 15, and we jump 
all the way to 1988 where they're 35. And when you listen to the names that I give you, a lot of the a lot of the names that I said, like Freddie Jackson, you know, they're not going to be doing the same thing in 1989. You know, it's going to be crazy when you see guys like Peebo Bryson, who were, you know, still able to make big R&B hits, switch over to doing stuff like Beauty and the Beast and being on the adult contemporary charts at the top of the 90s because they can't compete with New Jack Swing anymore. And um, there's something that I remember. I think it's 1991. People Bryson visited the set of um Video Soul, and he gets interrupted by Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, who bring their album Home Base to Donnie Simpson, and you can just see the hatred. You could just see the anger. And he's trying to hide it in Peebo Bryson's face. The idea that like this dude with a TV show, this this rapper and his DJ showed up during my time with Donnie Simpson. And so he, he was just like being really like standoffish with him, talking about I could do this too if if I had Quincy Jones producing producing me. And Will just turns to him and says, actually, we produce our own music. And Quincy just works on the show. And like, it was just, it was emblematic of how black music, entrenched black music, especially R&B artists felt towards rap and hip hop at the time. It was just interesting. But that whole thing just goes to show you, it's like how the cycles, the cycle changes And how you have to look at each individual space and you have to break things down on a cellular level as opposed to just looking at things from the outside. Because the way you have to do it, too, is um, is is unique, because if you are looking at the billboard charts, like you could Google the billboard charts, you could pull them up online on your phone, whatever, and it'll list the 100 songs on the billboard chart for a particular week. That's great. It doesn't work that way for black music. The hot black singles, um, of course, there's a hundred, right? But like, you can't look them up online the same way you can the Hot 100, the Billboard Hot 100, and the top black albums. If you look up black albums, or they list them as R&B albums when you look them up, uh, it stops at 50. But if you look, you'll notice that it'll say our album moved up from 50 from 61. And you're like, wait, what does that mean? Because top black albums went to 75. Now, when you go on Billboard, they have the Billboard Top 200. So you have the top 200 selling albums out at the time. And when you look at the black charts, it has the top set, top black albums that listed in 75. Occasionally, you would you look at the discrepancy because the number one black album could either be the number one, number five, number 10, number 22 on the Billboard Hot 200. But by that same token, the bottom 40 albums on the top black albums that's listed as 75 won't be on the top 200 at all. So let's say that you're looking for a particular album and, and it's, uh, it's history. If you Google it, you're not going to find it at all. So what you're stuck doing is you have to pretty much find physical copies of old billboards from the 80s or the 90s even. 
because you're not going to find the information you're looking for online. And if you're a younger music writer or journalist, you're not going to know that information. You're not going to know that you can go through the hot black singles, which is 100 songs listed. And beneath that, there's a bubbling under, which lists another 25. And you can track all these songs and everything going back. But you have to do it in a manner where you have to probably go to a library. But do you want to do that kind of work? Do you want to do that kind of labor? And are you getting paid enough to make that, to have that kind of incentive to do that kind of labor? And do you have to do other pieces at the same time? That's why one of the knocks against journalism nowadays is that it's too fast to be good. Whereas I can take my time and look for something and do something because I get money from out. I have to get money from outside of just doing journalism because I there's no way in hell. I'd be able to do it. And I understand. It's, it's, it's stupid. But um, you also have to keep in mind that I grew up in a world without Google. I was Google. When I used to work at record stores, we used to get auditioned or interviewed and they would quiz us. They would quiz us on all type of things. Everything from when an album came out, who was the producer, what label was on, um, how many how many pressings were there, uh, a whole bunch of minutia was really involved in the job. And this is also a time when people would call you on the phone when you worked at the record store, and they start singing a song or humming it to you, and you had to identify the song on the phone. If um if you saw uh, recently, they did this thing on um. Uh, the Jimmy Fallon show where they had Quest identify print songs in one second and he was able to do it like it was funny because I was like yeah that's, I could do that but then it was like half a second quarter of a second and he was still able to do it that's kind of the level of expertise you needed to work in a record store or a video store when I was coming up and I was one of those kids that I used to memorize all the videos that were coming out because they used to have standees in the um, window. And I and uh, my way my memory works is I remember things I have no business remembering. So I remember like all the videos that came out in 83, 84, 85, 86, 87 because I used to go to a video store. And back in those days, you have to keep in mind, not everybody had a video store membership or a, it was a big deal to have one. And if you were in a household that had three, which like mine did, it was a big deal. My mom had one, my big brother had one, my big sister had one. And then later, my younger brother and I had one. In order to have a, um, a, a card where you could rent videos, you, kinda ha- you had to have a, a credit card usually. You had to have a bank account or a credit card, or both. And the reason was because um, VHS tapes back then used to cost a- anywhere between Seventy nine ninety five to like a hundred and nineteen ninety five, one hundred twenty dollars. So if you lost one or you destroyed one, you had to pay for it because that was their rental copy and they were supposed to make money off of it. I'll never forget one day. Um, there was a drug dealer that came in, and um, one of the most popular videos that people used to rent was uh, Prince's Sign of the Times film. It wasn't the it wasn't the tour movie. It was like he did a film, a concert film, and when it finally came out for rental, it used to always be out, 
So when it finally came back in, rather than have to worry about renting it or have it be out, the dude was just like, yo, I'll just buy it from you. And the guy looks at him, he's like, yo, this tape, our rental copy, it costs like $119.95. Guy pulls out $150 and just throws it on the counter. He just puts it in the box and gives it to him. Because, again, he's a drug dealer and he probably shoot him. But we, who you going to say no to that guy? It was Roxbury. But, like, it was t- things, are, things were so different back in the days. And we have to keep that in mind. And also, when we're talking about that, we also have to uh, keep in mind, earlier I was talking about album and single cycles. So, some interesting album and single cycles. I talked about Michael Jackson's... Um, thriller album but you look at other albums like things that couldn't happen anymore happened back then you look at things like um forever your girl by paula abdul how long it took for her album to catch on with singles like knockout uh then later straight uh straight up you know forever your girl the remix album if you go back and look at the life of those singles and then the life of that album and how long it lasted, these things couldn't happen anymore. The industry is completely different. If you look at the single single cycles like New Edition's Candy Girl, which came out in November 1982, and it took a while. You got to remember that uh, Maury Starr and Arthur Baker were originally part of a record pool, uh, a popular record pool, This spanned between Boston, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Philly. So you could get that region eventually. So it's going to take you between November to January 1983 just to get that region, right? Now, you're going to need a more of a push in order to get to the, the black music charts, which didn't happen until April. So it took another three months but when once it got there, April 2nd, 1983, I believe is the date that it actually entered the charts. It climbed up the charts in about four weeks. So by May 5th, May 4th, I think, um, 1983, it, it finally hit number one. But it had to go through George Clinton's Atomic Dog and Michael Jackson's Beat It in order to do so. Think about that level of competition. That's just not the case anymore. You put out a song and you do not have to compete with giants on your way up. Giants, legends in music. And of course, again, on in terms of black music, it was even tougher. I don't think anybody really takes that and takes that into consideration. I mean, if you want to go back and look at how long it took Keith Sweat, I want her to climb up the charts. In late 1987, all the way up until spring 1988. And that's one of the hottest songs in recent history. In the past 25 years plus of black music history, I can't think of a song. And we want to talk about impact. Talk about the reaction at a party. The reaction at a jam. The reaction on the radio when you heard that song playing out of a car. When, actually, when I think about like songs from that era and the reaction when people heard them, uh, I got to thank. Um, so 
Keep Sweat, I Want Her. Guys Groove Me. Um, Just Got Paid. New Edition, If It Isn't Love. Oh, uh, My Prerogative, Bobby Brown. Is Pebbles... I don't think Pebbles' girlfriend got that same kind of response. No, I don't think I don't think Pebbles' girlfriend got that kind of response. No, um, definitely guys groove me. Um, but oh, it takes two. Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock. Um, there are so there are very few songs that got such an, an instant response when they were played. I don't not even I'll be sure if I'm not your lover. Nah. The remix with um, Slick Rick. No, not even, not even that one. Maybe um, maybe Tony Tony Tone. It feels good. I think that's also on the chest. Little Walter. No, Little Walter was a hit, but no, it didn't get the response that feels good got. No way. And I also think um, Troop spread my wings. Troop spread my wings. Also got that kind of response. But also I think what did that is um, Troop spread my wings. Their video. And I will go on record as saying this. I think I've said it on Twitter before. When you look at dance or dance videos, I think New Edition had it for the longest. But when you get into 1988, 1989, they had cats that are coming for their heads. And I think one of the people that came the best was Easily Troop. Troop Spread My Wings video might be the best dance combination by a group. And... I think that they gave they gave the they gave them dudes something like something that they had to yo we gotta go back to the drawing board because when they did the heartbreak tour new edition new edition the stuff that they had in the heartbreak tour that that was tough but I think a lot of it had to be due to the fact that they were getting pushed by um troop I don't know who did troop's choreography I don't I know that the boys at one point um they had uh Rosie Perez was their choreographer I remember that. But good lord, I mean they had it going. And Johnny Kemp, um, there was no help for Johnny Kemp. Do me a favor, I want you to go find the Just Got Paid video. Now there are special effects in the Just Got Paid video. They switch the camera, they flip it, they show him from the legs up, they show him from the chest up. A lot of times, go look at when they actually show him dancing. Johnny Kemp could not dance to save his life and they did so many camera effects and so many tricks even slowing down the things showing the people that could dance to try to um throw us off i haven't seen and this is some music insider shit i haven't seen somebody try to cover up somebody's horrible dance steps that badly since um there was a group called allure who was um, on Crave, Mariah Carey's label. They did a video called Head Over Heels. The video director purposely shot them, I think from the legs up, because he, or like the thighs up, because their dancing was so horrible. And then of course, Mariah Carey like jumped in and like posed. It was like, it figures Mariah Carey signs girls that can't dance. But that's the last time I could think of some director going through so much work to try to cover up how horribly somebody danced. I mean, and you got to think, man, back in the days, you had to be able to dance. You had to dance your ass off. Even like the low level groups. 
there was a group called Pretty in Pink that was signed by Motown. It was um Shaka Khan's daughter. Those girls could dance their asses off. And even then they couldn't get a look. Uh Shaka Khan pretty much had to force the the label wouldn't do anything, so she had to force everyone's hand. She brought them to Arsenio herself and got them on the show. I'll never forget that. Yeah. That was a fun time. And Frankie Crocker was in the video. Like, I don't know. It was just an interesting time for for music, man. But when you just think about how much different music was, how we related to it versus now, I say we. I think I just should say people because it's not necessarily we because I can't look at music the same way somebody young does because I have all this all these memories of how things used to be. I don't hear songs blaring out of cars getting the same reaction as they did back in the day. But then again, would I recognize it if I saw it? Like if someone plays they when someone played they want effects back in 1992, I knew when people reacted to it. Or when someone played Welcome to the Terror Dome, that reaction it initially it immediately got. You know, I've seen songs get reactions, I'm not going to lie, but I haven't stayed at those parties very long. I haven't stayed around because it's like I this isn't my music. And it's not like necessarily hating on something, it's just that it's not it's not made for me. There's a big difference between recognizing when something isn't your thing and thinking it's trash and something actually just not being high quality and you not liking it, but other people not having the same level of standards you have and them loving it. Never the twain shall meet. It's like if you meet somebody who loves trauma films. I hate trauma films. I think they're terrible. But... Are we going to sit there and have an argument about whether they're good or not? It doesn't matter. I don't like them. You love them. We're never going to agree. We could talk about Netflix series. I could love the OA. You think it's weird. You don't get it. I love Black Mirror. You, you can't stand it. You can't watch more than one episode. We're at an impasse. Everyone's tastes aren't the same. Everything isn't made for everyone. And I think that's something we have to get past. But I think that also we have standards. And there are things that we tend to observe. And when other people don't agree with them. Or like them. Then I think a lot of times we just like, okay. We'll let you get that one. You You don't need to like that. But if you don't like this. There's something wrong with your fucking ears. I think I kind of subscribe to that one. Uh, on Twitter, I had this discussion with somebody, they were, and I was talking about um, classic albums. Now, this is also another, another point of contention with classic albums, right? Because there's a time where everything breaks. I say past 96, everything breaks. And everyone doesn't agree across the board on what constitutes a classic album anymore. And I think a lot of it has to do with the break between the underground and the mainstream um, rap worlds where the underground rap world emerged so there are a lot of albums 97 98 99 2000 going forward that are classic albums 
but they weren't considered classic by the mainstream and the mainstream media a fandom because everybody didn't hear them. They didn't. They did. They. It's not so much that they didn't sell a lot of copies because let's keep it a buck. There are a lot of albums from the '90s that just didn't sell well, but are considered classic because you know they were co-signed by things like The Source or Rap Pages, or they were on major labels, so they got enough coverage, regardless if they sold or not. Like the video was on MTV, it was on BET, you know. But those same albums that would have regarded be regarded the same way. You fast forward five years from 1993, like. That same album is going to be regarded a classic anymore because there's another album that was on a major label that got the reach that's going to be considered a classic over it, even though quality wise, it probably wouldn't warrant it alone. So that's something we also have to look at. But um, in terms of classic material and then, of course, we have two sets of things that we have to keep in mind because there's the hip hop classic quintessential classic album or the universally agreed upon classic album then there's the ones in r&b and you gotta remember that r&b also has an underground so you look at what's an underground r&b classic album i would say um you look at albums by guys like reggie b daru jones um Probably uh, Little Dragon, Kenna. You know, these aren't really big mainstream R&B albums. It's not the obvious choice like Usher. You know, ninety-seven zero one, whatever the fuck it's called, uh, Confessions. You know, you can you can go with like Tweet Southern Hummingbird. You know, people like it had a hit. You know, it had a big hit. You know. But, like, there are albums that are released by people, you know, like Wayna or what have you, you know what I'm saying? Darian Brockington, you know? And it's like not everybody heard these albums. Musina. And it's kind of hard to, like, get everybody on board. A long time ago, I wrote a piece about um, Amy Winehouse. And her first album, I wrote a, a piece saying that her first album was a classic. And I wrote a piece for her 10th anniversary of, of Frank. I was the only music journalist that wrote this piece. I called Frank a classic. And I highlighted how it was insane and it was inju- an injustice that the album still hadn't gone gold in North America. That means Canada and the United States. Because the album was released stateside after um, Back to Black came out. And my introduction to Amy Winehouse was through Frank. I was working at a CVS overnight. There was a girl who went to Emerson. And one of her friends was from the UK. And she was listening to it in the headphones. And I was like, what are you listening to? And she said, I'm going to change your life right now. She put the headphones on my ears. I heard some of the songs and I pulled out a piece of reg tape and I wrote down Amy Winehouse's Frank and when I got home I had to go to the UK Apple store and the Apple store is new by the way the i the the, the iTunes store is new at the time this happened in 2003 so I had to go to the UK iTunes store and buy Frank 
and I had it in my iPod for years, years. And the only place I could find people to talk about Amy Winehouse, because none of her, there was no YouTube. Her videos weren't playing on TV, on digital cable. So the only place I could go to talk about Amy Winehouse were two places. That was OKP, the OK Player Board. And that was this site called The Census, which was a UK like music board. So it was, it was OK Player and The Census were the two places I could discuss Amy Winehouse up until Back to Black came out, the video, the single for Rehab. And by that time, the video was airing. And it was funny because during that time, you know, that's when YouTube exists. So for the first time, I could see Amy Winehouse's old videos. And Frank era Amy Winehouse was bad. So, yeah, um... I actually don't know what in the fuck point I was trying to make with this episode other than talk about like cycles or the difference between then and now. But I think the next time I do an episode, I'm actually going to have an idea of what I really want to talk about. And then I'm going to do that. And I think I'm going to do it um, in the format of one of my lectures as opposed to free talking. Because as much as I like talking into a phone or into a space. I don't know if other people enjoy it. I don't know if y'all like hearing the sound of my melodious voice. Because I'm me. And sometimes I get sick of me. And when I'm talking, I'd be like, well, you shut the fuck up. But when I'm lecturing, I'm so in my head and I'm so gauging the reaction of the people that I'm talking to. And maybe they'll laugh or maybe they ask questions that I could bounce off of them where I don't I'm not in my head as much as thinking about what's going on. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. On Twitter, I did have this discussion um, about uh, dancing. So, yeah, um, I was a dancer. I was a B-boy when I was younger. Uh, 1982, 83, really heavy into it. 85, I think the first on-record case of what we call now cool hunting happened, where they made b-boying uncool. And what happened was, when you b-boyed, you chop rocked. You know what I'm saying? You heard a song and you knew it was hot, and you got up, you started dancing. Like when you heard. That means you went into the circle and you start top rocking because you knew that the drums were gonna come for like it's just begun. Or when you hear a Rick James, or when you when you hear a, like a, a, a James Brown song, you know that something's happening that is gonna get to the drum break. So it's like everybody's circling around because that's when the B-boys got into it. And then when the drums kicked in or when the break kicked in, that's when you went to the floor. Or like it happened later with songs like Freeze IOU, which you would pop and lock to. You know, you would tick, you do the King Tut, all that stuff to it. You know, maybe uh, Michael Jackson's PYT, Pretty Young Thing, you might pop. You might like, you know, do some moonwalking shit, something like that. But what happened was we got to a point where in 1984, when b-boying went mainstream, that people were under the impression that you popped and locked and b-boyed and went to the floor for every fucking song. 
And that made it uncool because we were told, being a floor lord, I was told, like, you dance to the song. You know, you go to the song. The song tells you what to do with your body. You follow that. It's like Bruce Lee with um, going with the flow versus a rehearsed routine. And I think that a lot of times what happened was when they started teaching kids how to b-boy and they started doing all these break how-to videos and shit like that they didn't give them that understanding of the music guide you so songs like kenny Loggins danger zone would come on and motherfuckers would just go right into a fucking backspin or they'd be doing windmills to save the overtime for me by gladys knight and the pips like what the fuck are you doing like why are you going to the floor for this like we don't just you don't do that so by 80 like in 85 that was when like you would be like wanting to dance or would go on the floor and someone would grab you by your shoulder and they'd be like nah nah don't do that because it's been it's corny now so that kind of made b-boying go underground but what happened was we started getting into like hip-hop dancing it's like 86 87 you know you got you got the wop you got the the steve martin you know the biz dance you know if you watch videos from the 80s, you'll see like, you know, all the all the hip hop dancers that everybody regarded as great, you know, from all the all the clubs and everything. And we knew them by name. I listed a whole bunch of them on Twitter going back with like Rap Lover and some other guys. Um, but the thing is that me personally, I had to stop dancing because we reached an impasse. Once you got to 1988, 89, getting into 1990, the music started to change. And we got into the early backpacker era, I call it, because they started instituting rules. First of all, at the club level, you had three different subsets of groups. You had the New Jack Swing R&B kids who went to the club. They dressed nice. They danced or whatever. They didn't really give anybody any problems. Then you had the house kids. The house kids were slightly older than the R&B kids. They would dance to R&B and house. They wouldn't give too many problems. They would drink. Um, so that's helping out the bar. And they could interact fine with the R&B kids and the New Jack Swing kids. And some of them, the dancers, were in both realms. Now... With the hip-hop kids, if you didn't play certain songs, we were giving y'all hell. And we didn't want to dress up. We were happy just wearing our sneakers, our jeans, our hoodies. And since we were younger, a lot of us wore backpacks. And we were just a fucking pain in the ass. And if any violence happened, a lot of times it was due to us. And the other part was we didn't drink. Or legally. So what happened over that span of time is with the music changing and everything and people were dressing different and the dancing switched up. So it was more the house dancing started to take over more. So if you couldn't do like contortionist moves, uh, you couldn't do that bendy shit or like you couldn't do stuff like the mop tops were doing in the videos. Like a perfect example was I think um, Layla Hathaway's Baby Don't Cry. Um, if you couldn't do stuff like that, and I couldn't, then you really didn't have any future as a dancer, especially in the club scene market stretch like that. And another thing was, it was about look. 
So a lot of the guys in that scene, they either had dreads or they had like the high top fade or the step fade. They had it dyed blonde in the corner. They wore the flowy shirts, the silk shirts, the pants. Sometimes they wore polka dots like Kwame. You know, they wore what we called the mailman shoes. I was wearing my Adidas. I'm wearing my jeans or some sweats or whatever. And that shit just wasn't acceptable. So when they instituted the dress code, it kind of told the whole cross section of kids. It's like, we don't really want you here. It's like no backpacks, no jeans, no hats, no sneakers. We get it. You don't want us here. So we left that scene and it was pretty much left to the, you know, the New Jack Swing and and house dancers. But here's the thing. The house dancers and the New Jack Swing kids, all the stuff. A lot of the hip hop dancers did all type of styles. But if the club is where you're going to get seen... And the club is where you're going to um, have your career go. Then you're going to conform. You know, I didn't have a future in that. I wasn't good enough. So I left. And then I started robbing motherfuckers and boosting and rapping. Well, I was rapping anyway. But what's funny is that at the same time I'm doing all this, the Boston talent show circuit so crazy that I would like, you know, cats would still be in the talent show circuit. So you're still in an R&B group just as a dancer or whatever, as a background guy. And then you would like pretend, I would pretend I was singing. I ain't sing. So it's just interesting when I think about that whole era and how dance was. And the thing is that like it just got to a point where cats didn't dance anymore. But it was always an integral part of the culture. And it's good to see like when I go on YouTube or you go on Twitter or whatever and see the cats actually still incorporate dancing and a lot of people look down on it. I'm like, when when did that happen? Like, if you're a fucking DJ or you make music, what the fuck you think people going to do? Just stand there and nod their head all the damn time? The music I grew up on, we danced to. The music we made a lot of times was the dance to. If you think 911 is a joke, is a song that nobody danced to, yeah, you're fucking mine. If you think... uh. Rock this funky joint when it came on, people didn't dance. You're out of your mind. If you think when Brand New Beans dropped the bomb came on, people didn't dance, you're out of your fucking mind. If you think Public Enemies Welcome to the Daredome came on and everybody stood still, you're a fucking idiot. So anyway, I feel like that's the perfect place to end this episode. What was this, what was this episode about? I don't know. I'll probably listen to it just to fucking figure it out. But I have no sign off. Whatever the fuck. See y'all later.